Welcome to the Brass Spittoon, the podcast of the Front Porch Republic. We'll chew on issues timeless and timely with a focus on place, limits, and liberty. I'm your host, John Murdoch. Today, we complete our slow motion holiday binge through the 2022 FPR Conference Buffet. We begin with Thanksgiving on the near horizon, and we end on that most earthy and localist of American observances, Groundhog Day. In this final conference session, we receive a civics lesson. Mark Mitchell contrasts the traditional American role for small property owners with the vision coming from Davos. Rachel Ferguson reminds us of the very real systems of racism that have targeted the ties that bind African-American communities together. And Bill Kaufman closes the after-virtual conference with a perspective form from visiting that most real of locales, the cemetery. Kate Dalton, an original porcher who penned one of the first pieces for the website and doesn't since, introduces the panel. Mark Mitchell is one of the founders of Front Porch Republic. He is a Westerner, but he has made his home in Virginia, where he is a, a dean, a righteous dean at Patrick Henry College, and a very uh, fine and thoughtful man. Following him will be Rachel Ferguson, who is new to me, but I'm delighted to meet her. She is from St. Louis, the town she loves. She's affiliated with the Acton Institute and has a new book out that I believe she's going to speak from today, and I personally am looking forward to that. Last, as he so often is, is our, uh, our dear friend Bill Kaufman, the author of many, many books, credited and uncredited to him, and I think uh, he really needs no introduction here. So without further ado, as we are short on time, please welcome Mark Mitchell. Good afternoon. It's good to uh, see you all here, and sometimes the last session, I guess, is the one that, uh, well, that's why we saved Bill for the very last. Keeps people around. <laughs> the title of my talk is Property Matters, and I want to start by just thinking back to 2008 in the fall, and those of you who were paying attention know that the world was falling apart. The stock market was collapsing. Retirement accounts were evaporating. People on the television, the talking heads, were, were using terms like economic apocalypse. And, of course, the solution that uh, resolved everything and, and uh, saved us from that apocalypse was massive government uh, initiative to stabilize the economy. By bailing out companies that were, as you recall, deemed too big to fail and indulging in policies meant to inject money into the system and reduce interest rates. They called it quantitative easing. Incidentally, it was during that time, that dark, those dark months, that uh, FPR uh, was born. And a group of people got together concerned about seeing things that, that were of a concern and didn't seem like people on the left or the right were, were addressing the full uh, spectrum of problems. 
And incidentally, I suppose, and, and sadly enough today, we seem to be experiencing a similar ominous sense of trouble. The details are somewhat different, whereas in 2008 it seemed like an acute problem was upon us. Today it seems more like a slow unraveling. But I think the underlying dynamics are recognizable. And one thing that we need to pay attention to in all of this is something that's been noted that over the last four or so decades, the middle class has slowly been shrinking. In 1971, according to Pew, 61% of Americans, a clear majority, were in the middle class. By 2015, only 50%. Home ownership something that is seen by so many as a kind of stable of, of middle-class security is more elusive. You young people thinking about owning a home, it's, it's, it's much more difficult to even contemplate. Underemployment, student debt, inflation, a general demoralization seems to be, well, a common lot. Young people who once thought it was just a matter of, of, of uh, inevitability that their standard of living and their happiness would exceed that of their parents are now not so sure that that's the case. And then almost in, as if in response to the frustration, entered the World Economic Forum. They launched an ad campaign that included eight predictions for 2030. The first prediction was made with a picture of a young man, looked in his mid-twenties, a, a nicely trimmed beard, a kind of sparkle in his eye and a contented look on his face. And the caption said, by 2030, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. <laughs> it almost sounded like a threat. This was part of a larger initiative they called the Great Reset. The coronavirus pandemic provided a focal point and a sense of emergency. The looming existential threat of climate change made sweeping action appear necessary if we're going to prevent a, a catastrophe that would dwarf even the carnage of the coronavirus. And then in May of 2020, the murder of George Floyd touched off protests around the United States and, 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 and beyond and seemed to indicate that, that there was a, a fundamental problem at the systemic level of, of all that we had once seen as, as constituting who and what we were. And the common denominator of all this was crisis. And the common agent of change well, it seemed to be the only agent that was capable of dealing with such, such monumental problems was government power in partnership with many of the world's largest multinational corporations. According to the World Economic Forum website, this is how they frame the problem, the world must act jointly and swiftly to revamp all aspects of our societies and economies. From education to social contracts to working conditions, every country from the United States to China must, they like that word must, participate. Every industry from oil and gas to tech must 
be transformed. In short, we need a great reset of capitalism. And then, as if to emphasize the scope of everyone already on board, they include a list of corporate sponsor or corporate uh, uh, partners in this endeavor. And here's just a partial list. Amazon, Apple, Barclays, Boeing, China Construction Bank, Deutsche Bank, Discovery, European Investment Bank, Facebook, Goldman Sachs, IBM, JP Morgan, Kaiser Permanente, LinkedIn, MasterCard, Microsoft, NASDAQ, Netflix, New York Times, PayPal, Pfizer, Tyson Foods, UPS, Visa, Walmart, Western Union, and dozens more. What is described here is a global plutocracy that is ruled by the wealthy. This great reset makes explicit a dynamic that's been developing for some time. And we even see uh, a kind of analog in the United States with the so-called Green New Deal. This new plutocracy is expanding its reach and concentrating its power. In the process, the lines between public and private money and public and private power between big business and big government are increasingly being blurred. Yet I think it's important to note that Wealth is not a sufficient condition for gaining access to this current plutocratic class. What's also necessary is a particular outlook, what we might call a plutocratic psychology. This illusory meritocracy is rooted in the false belief that wealth or proximity to wealth is an indication of special moral virtue. Not surprisingly, this belief manifests itself in a disposition to self-righteousness, whereby those infected with it come to see themselves as superior to their fellow citizens, who are, alas, neither wealthy nor connected. They come to see themselves as above the law, for law is necessary for controlling common citizens, but it's certainly not something that should limit those possessing the moral superiority that wealth would seem to denote. Thus, the plutocracy is characterized by both insolence and self-righteousness. And it's not conveniently limited to either the left or the right. There's a problem. In a democratic age where equality is seen as one of the highest ideals, the plutocratic class, if it's going to survive, must somehow appear to come to aid the insecure populist citizens and, they do, and it does so with state-sponsored benefits that will provide the illusion of security. This welfare state will, in time, as welfare states do, continue to expand and grow and, call, and bring forth calls for socialist policies and programs. This strange union, call it plutocratic socialism, then, is built on a symbiotic relationship between two seemingly opposed classes, plutocrats and those who are calling for expanded government programs. We're now witnessing this in America. Now, of course, this call for socialism today is in many quarters energized by a kind of woke agenda that takes matters far beyond the confines of economic theory. This, we call, might call it woke socialism, blames capitalism not only for economic injustices, but for racism, climate change, and a host of other nefarious wrongs. The race writer, racist, race, racial writer, what do we call him, Abraham X. Kendi, in his book, uh, How to 
Not how to be an anti-racist in no uncertain terms says that capitalism is necessarily racist and racism is necessarily capitalist. Well, we can't fault him for his, uh, his nuance there. He he's, doesn't have much. But, of course, this kind of claim sets the stage for radical economic, social, and political transformation. And it's important to appreciate this fundamental tension inherent in the union of plutocracy and this version of socialism. Woke socialism is rooted in the claim that the world is sharply divided between two classes construed in various ways as oppressors and oppressed, the victimizers and the victims, the powerful and the weak, or as we heard from our keynote speaker, the front row versus the back row people. Plutocrats clearly are front row citizens. They hold the power, and those deemed oppressed or marginalized, that is, people of color, women, the poor, those identifying as LGBT, etc., just go down the list, they ostensibly don't. But it's here where things get a little tricky. Plutocrats must appear to make common cause with those oppressed classes, lest they forfeit the perception of moral authority. To do so, they must convince themselves that their special virtue and status provide them with a unique opportunity to do important work on behalf of the oppressed and thereby legitimating their own relentless hold on wealth, status, and power. How else can one explain the self-righteous arrogance of the plutocratic class? How else can one explain the full-on embrace of the woke agenda by corporate leaders, the military, colleges, universities, and the media, and so on? How else can one understand the Davos set, comprised of political officials, corporate leaders, and prominent media figures flying private jets to their annual confab in Switzerland, and to issue vehement condemnations of behavior that contributes to the climate crisis. Their sense of self-importance far exceeds their carbon footprints, which are, alas, far larger than average. They're not socialists. They never intend to forfeit their wealth, power, or status in the name of equality, or even in the name of equity. Plutocratic socialism, then, represents a strange alliance that would have stunned and dismayed Marx, whose name is often associated with some aspects of this. It's as if the bourgeoisie and the proletariat decide to strike a secret pact and work together rather than allow their rancorous animosity to ignite a full-blown revolution. The leadership of both classes have much to gain by the seemingly bizarre arrangement. Plutocrats gain moral legitimacy and socialist leaders gain wealth, status, and power. Ironically, the very things cherished by the plutocrats. Perhaps this hidden dynamic is one reason why the socialist revolution has never really come to a successful termination, but instead remains stuck in a transitional phase where the plutocrats and those fortunate individuals drawn into their orbit secure the wealth, power, and status, while the revolutionary energy of the masses is allowed to burn out in frustration or just to bubble along in a low level chronic despair. It's essential to recognize that concentrations of power in any form are a threat. The concentration of economic power implies a consolidation of private property into fewer and fewer hands and establishes the conditions that make plutocracy almost inevitable. When real private property 
that is capital, becomes increasingly concentrated, the general taste for it will eventually wane, while demands for government security programs will increase. At that moment, freedom is in real jeopardy. Now, my point here is really quite simple. Democracy without private property is fundamentally unstable and won't survive. To put matters a bit more expansively, a proletarianized citizenry is incompatible with self-government or with the Republican form of government that the U.S. founders created. Without an effective majority of citizens who own property and whose character have been formed by property, that is a vibrant middle class, the founders' constitution will not survive. Our current age of plutocratic socialism is a specific manifestation of a pathology the founders feared. With that, we might need to understand that, that ownership of property helps to cultivate certain virtues that underwrite and undergird self-government. It's an interesting point that when he visited the United States in 1831, the French observer Alexis de Tocqueville was impressed by the fact that Americans were a property people. In America, he declared, there is no proletarian class. That is no longer the case. From this perspective, the rancorous conflict between Democrats and Republicans takes on new meaning. Many Republicans insist that our current situation is merely the result of market forces combined with a meritocracy wherein rewards are doled out based on nothing but hard work and talent. They insist that massive corporate power and growing income inequality are the natural outcomes produced by the market's invisible but always just hand. It is in this light no surprise that many Democrats smell a rat. If this is capitalism, it clearly needs replacing. Woke socialism has emerged to provide an alternative to the injustices seeming latent in the American society. But what if both sides are wrong? What if the thing many on the right identify as capitalism is a corrupt and unstable facsimile that has retained some of the outward features of a market system, but has steadily eroded middle-class property, which is its essence? What if socialism holds out the promise of justice and equality only to destroy freedom in the end? And perhaps most striking, what if the two reigning alternatives actually serve to enable and strengthen each other? What if the corporatization of the economy produces insecure, proletarianized citizens who quite understandably demand the social and economic security that only a strong state can provide? In short, what if the ascending plutocracy is a natural outgrowth of concentrations of wealth on the one hand, combined with the resulting insecure, propertyless citizens on the other? From this perspective, it appears that property arrangements that make plutocracy more or less inevitable are the same that make socialist policies attractive. The founders of the American Republic understood that a large class of propertyless citizens, if they possess the franchise, that is, if they vote, would be a danger to the very survival of the Republic, for they had, had every incentive to vote advantages to themselves at the expense of the propertied few. Today, the middle class is shrinking and we're left with the question, can the republic the founders created exist with a proletarian majority? 
the founders would have been deeply skeptical. Ultimately, the fate of the American constitutional order, and more broadly of freedom itself, depends at least in part on the fate of private property. As citizens increasingly demand services rendered by the omnibenevolent hand of the state working in concert with corporate power, the longing for private property will fade. After all, the state promises to care for every need, including our daily bread. When the longing for private property is eclipsed by the demand for social services and social security, the demise of freedom is near. The welfare state will continue to expand along a socialist continuum for the more dependents brought under its care, the more constituents it will have to validate itself at the ballot box. All this to say that there is an alternative, and the alternative is a revitalization of the middle class. And there is a, a need today for policymakers to make every effort to focus upon that end. There are policies in place today that are actually antithetical to the formation of the middle class, to the strengthening of the middle class. They under, undermine middle class property. And it also requires individuals in, in, in communities around the country to model what healthy ownership looks like, to model entrepreneurial creativity, to provide the, the models, the images for young people to see what it looks like to move from a propertyless person to one who has property. And generational wealth is an important part of this, but so too is social and political opportunities that are made possible by good policy and by good models and, and so much turns on the future of the middle class. So with that, I will step aside for Rachel. Thank you. Hi, everybody. I'm glad to be here. I'm Rachel Ferguson. I'm from Concordia University, Chicago. And I do commute because I wanted to stay in my hometown, St. Louis, Missouri. This will follow very well on what Mark said. <laughs> this, will, this will coalesce very well. My book is uh, Black Liberation Through the Marketplace, Hope, Heartbreak, and the Promise of America. My publisher actually asked my co-author and I why we were titling the book that way. She said, just why, why do you want to call it Black Liberation? She hadn't read it. Uh, it was someone else who'd read it, right? She said, why are you calling it Black Liberation Through the Marketplace? Why don't we just say Through the Market? And we said, no, 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 no. It's the Marketplace and we had never dreamed of calling it through the market because so much of the story of black economic flourishing in the United States is the story of the way that the internal thick civil society institutions that black Americans created and sustained brought them out of poverty in a powerful way. And so it's the story of economic flourishing and uh, communal flourishing. It all starts with the black church, of course. Okay, so I have a whole chapter on the black church, the, the cultural womb of black America, as Lincoln and Mamiya say. Um, a very complex institution for black people in America because 
uh, it had to house so many things, right? And so in the black church, you have the one arena in which in the 19th century, black leadership and black um, self-esteem is respected. And what that means is that so much of what black people want to do together will be done in the church, not just worship, but art, literacy efforts, the starting schools, uh, the, the relationships that will lead to the, the famous fraternal associations that so many black American men were part were a part of a kind of early social insurance uh, version of social insurance. The business leagues, uh, if you've watched the Netflix series Self Made, right? The very first advertisements for her hair care, Madam C.J. Walker and her um, competitor, right? They both they both get up in church and try to invite people to to buy their products. Political organizing, etc. And so it it, it serves a, a a lot of purposes, a kind of community center and a very very strong and important and central institution. As time goes by and you have uh, the Great Migration North and you have a lot of um, factories and so forth opening up, what you see, at least in some places, is actually uh, the beginnings of organic integration. And so the, the way that this looks, and you can see this in Richard Rothstein's The Color of Law, um, which I highly recommend, is that it's street by street. Right, and so if you you want to be near your work, so you're near the factory. So you have a street of black workers, you have a street of Polish maybe workers, you have a street of of Irish or German, whatever it might be, and maybe they have their little church on that street, right? And so people are in their own communities, but they're also fairly integrated. They're living fairly near each other. But this is all emerging at the same time as the ideology of progressive eugenics is emerging, right at the turn of the century. And this is a scientistic ideology, right? One which believes that with the complexity of modern life, you know, we need experts, right? We need the rule of experts to figure out how to proceed, which is like the opposite of what we might call a Hayekian perspective, right? The Hayekian, F.A. Hayek, uh, his idea of emergent order would be you keep your rules simple, Right? And you let, you've got your private property rights, your freedom of contract, your rule of law. You keep those as simple and straightforward as possible, and you allow cooperative efforts to emerge, and they can be actually quite complex through things like the price system and so forth. And, and actually, micromanaging tends to go wrong, right? That's where you get your unintended consequences and so forth. So there's, these are opposing ideologies. The, the progressives are eugenicists, and so it's a kind of uh, version of social Darwinism, and, and, and they have the view that um, the Aryan household is the one that needs to be supported, and others, and it's almost unbelievable. I can show you, there, there's, a great, there's a great book called Illiberal Reformers by Thomas C. Leonard, if you're interested in this. You won't believe the quotes in the economics textbooks. They were just insane. I mean, it's offensive uh, to even repeat. But the idea is that if we can just sort of economically suppress the other groups, they will fade away. Because there was this idea that black Americans aren't motivated unless they're under the lash, right? It's sort of left over from uh, slavery. 
And so, <clears throat> motivated by this progressive eugenics, you get a very uh, managerial, scientistic approach to social planning, which includes um, racist zoning. Uh, so, you know, this is the early stuff. Um, you're not technically supposed to have zoning based on race, so they end up doing it based on single family housing versus um, den denser housing. Uh, and so that, that's just a way around uh, the, the constitutional rule against racist zoning. Uh, of course, most people now know about FHA redlining, the Federal Housing Administration's redlining, uh, the unwillingness to to ensure neighborhoods that were integrated or black. And uh, banks, we actually have a record, uh, many records of banks trying to do this. You know, they have a development for a black community or for an integrated community and the Federal Housing Administration saying, no, we're not gonna do that. So it was a form of economic suppression. But what a lot of people don't know about are the following um, forms of planning, which involved the way that the federal highway system was built, which is why my talk is called What's Wrong with the Roads, um, as well as urban renewal. So let's just put this into economic context for a moment. Between 1948 and 1966, this is kind of an amazing fact. Between 1948 and 1966, the black American poverty rate plummeted from 87% to 41% in that short amount of time. And this is the result of decades and decades and decades of effort uh, in the area of education, human capital, the great migration north. There's a lot, of, there's a lot going into this. Uh, by the way, liter the, the story of literacy in black America is really stunning. Um, starting from basically zero post-emancipation, 80% of black America is literate by 1930. Uh, Robert Higgs, in his book, Competition and Coercion, says it might be the biggest leap forward in literacy in, in, the, in history thus far. Okay, so, so the efforts of the church and of black communities to uh, educate were incredibly successful, and it all starts paying off with the economic boom of the post-war period. And so you have this amazing, this amazing plummeting poverty rate, and uh, things are looking up. In spite of all of the things we just said, right, about uh, redlining and other practices, things are looking up. And then we start to build the interstate highways. Okay, so let's talk about this. Have you guys seen the movie Cars? The Pixar movie Cars? Yes? Okay, most of you have, some of you haven't. I'll just describe a scene where two cars are talking to, to each other. One is named Sally and one is named Lightning, okay? And Sally is explaining to Lightning because they're, they're in an old ghost town. And he's like, why isn't anybody here? It seems like there used to be things here, um, but everything's empty now. There's nobody here. And so she takes him up on the hill and she looks at the state highway system. She says, see those roads? He goes, yeah. She goes, see how they kind of rise and fall with the land, right? And follow the curves of the land. He goes, yeah, right? And she says, well, that's how people used to drive. And she's got this great line. People used to drive uh, not to make great time, but to have a great time. <laughs> um, and, it's, and, and James Taylor starts singing in the background. <laughs> It's our town, right? And, uh, and you start to see these scenes of these lovely little towns along the state highway system where people would take trips and stop off and go to the diner and get their gas, right? And the town was built around that. 
And then it morphs into the interstate highway system, which everyone is initially very excited about. But you're seeing them actually blow through the mountain, right, in order to keep it straight. Uh, apparently, Eisenhower actually um, came across this on a trip. There was a mountain being exploded. And he said, who approved this? What is this? Because he was horrified by this. He said, you did, sir. It's the interstate highway system <laughs> being built. And, and so in the scene, you see all of the small town people so excited. And then, of course, everyone just starts passing them by. Right. And so you start to see the growth of all of these ghost towns. So it totally massively changes the face of the United States. It ends up being uh, 48,000 miles, 7,000 more than was planned. It took 35 years, which was 20 years longer than was planned. And it took $125 billion that in our, in our dollars, it would be like 530 billion. Uh, but it was five times as much as they planned on spending. Pretty typical government program in that regard. The story that is often not told, or what people don't often know as well, is what happened when the highways were brought through the major cities. And let's just imagine millions and millions and tens of millions of dollars being handed to municipal leaders. This is a great way to build a political machine, by the way. Right, you're friends with all the construction workers and the concrete guys and the unions. Boy, you're popular now, aren't you? So you're going to build the roads, but you got to pick where they go. And of course, this is the 50s and 60s. And so uh, they think this would be a great way to get rid of the black part of town, or at least to cut ourselves off. And they did not use the word black, of course. And we have the records. Um, so the book you'll want to look at is The Folklore of the Freeway by Eric Avila. And he looks at the municipal records and the terrible things that were said. And, and in many cases, you know, you can, we actually have records of them saying, you know, we could go through this part of town, which wouldn't disturb anyone, but let's not do that. Let's go through this other part of town where we actually mow down the black economic and cultural center, right? So we just mow right through the black main streets and Latino out West, by the way, in so many major cities in the United States. Of course, this involves a lot of them in a domain abuse. In many, in, in most cases, actually, with the interstate highway system, uh, people were not compensated for their property. One two punch, urban renewal, which James Baldwin called Negro removal. And uh, I have a wonderful quote in the book. Uh, I mean, wonderful in the sense of fitting, but actually quite sad, uh, in which uh, Baldwin interviews a young man. And he says, I'm so lucky I got him to talk. And he was saying how betrayed he felt by his own country because he was getting kicked out of his house. Uh, right? And so urban renewal was supposed to be slum clearance. But of course, it was just getting rid of upwardly mobile working class black neighborhoods and then scattering them to the four winds. Now, if we were just doing, if we were just doing kind of public choice analysis of this, we could talk about private property violations. We could talk about uh, the political machinery. But the the good wisdom that I've gained from people like you is to think about the trickle down effects of that kind of explosion of the communal center of so many communities all over the United States. And to think my church, my school, my business league, my fraternal association, my main street, my, my businesses all gone. And somehow I'm supposed to go somewhere and reconstitute that. How likely is that? How likely is that going to happen?
And I, I do have a couple of, uh, and, and wave at me, Kate, if I'm going too long. But I do just have a couple of really sad, um, sad examples. Uh, you can go on and on. Uh, but there was the Rondo neighborhood in Minneapolis. They actually have a festival every year to celebrate the old neighborhood. And the website reads that we're dedicated to preserving, conserving, and accurately interpreting the contributions of the African-American community of Rondo to the city of St. Paul. So it's St. Paul. Uh, this community was destroyed by the construction of Interstate I-94 in the 1960s. And then we go on to talk about Overton in Miami, mowed down by I-95. This is one in which uh, there was an absolutely perfectly serviceable alternative. Uh, and everyone got pushed out to what was called the second ghetto. Um, this was a great area with Afro-Caribbean and African-American mixing, a great nightlife, all gone. Uh, and, and I think the point here is that, uh, is that it's not just the property rights violations and the eminent domain abuse, but one wonders what might have been if those communities had been allowed to continue to flourish and build. And of course, unlike um, Poles and Germans and Irish and others, black Americans at this time were often not allowed uh, to move out to, uh, out to the suburbs. There were still covenant deeds and various things in place. And so um, eventually they were. And when they were, of course, those who were most capable of doing so did, um, leaving others behind. And we're dealing with the consequences of that today, of course. So what I want to, um, you know, we talk about uh, the subtitle here. What's the subtitle of our conference? Moving forward. No. Uh, recovering Lost Goods. Recovering Lost Goods. Thank you. I thought I had it in my notes, but I didn't. The Art of Recovering Lost Goods. This is a lot of loss that I've just described. A lot of loss. Um, and we're dealing with... Um, you know, terribly hollowed out, decentralized communities, which are in the denotative sense, ghettoized, meaning like literally you are to live in this area, uh, at least historically, right? And so we're dealing with the fallout of that. So what do we say uh, in terms of recovering the lost goods? We deal with lots of solutions in this book, five uh, in particular. So I'm, but I'm not going to talk about the policy solutions. So we, we talk about criminal justice reform. We talk about educational freedom. We talk about economic freedom. But I want to talk about the neighborhood stabilization movement, which I associate with people like Robert Lupton in Atlanta. Um, this is the author of a book called Toxic Charity. And I love his follow up book title, Charity Detox. <laughs> Very clever. Uh, <laughs> and, um, People like Brian Fickert, who wrote the book When Helping Hurts, um, dealing with the way that we sometimes do philanthropy from a very paternalistic perspective, one which helps people get through to, to, through Tuesday till Tuesday, but not but is not transformative. One which uh, treats people as mere recipients uh, rather than as dignified human beings. <laughs> who uh, I, I was just talking to a formerly incarcerated person uh, earlier this week in Atlanta. And he said, you know, the most frustrating thing when I got out of prison is there were so many people who wanted to give me clothes and wanted to give me food. And he said, all I wanted to do was give myself clothes and food. Could you help me with that? He was so frustrated. Uh, I associated with Bob Woodson and the work of the Woodson Center, uh, black ownership, gang intervention, 
uh, in, in D.C. And, and in other areas. I associated with, of course, the great John Perkins of the community, Christian Community Development Association. And so we talk about what this model looks like because what we're dealing with here is not so much black America, right? 80% of black America is not poor. Uh, most black Americans are middle class. Um, most of them do not live in the inner city, right? So we're talking about those who were left behind, those who, who have become totally economically stuck. And we have um, the back and forth between what we might call uh, blame the victim or blame the system dichotomy, which I think is a false dichotomy. Okay. And so maybe conservatives or some conservatives might be accused of, of taking the blame the victim route. You know, why don't you just get married and why don't you just pull yourself up by your bootstraps? Uh, which is a strange thing for conservatives to say, because of course, conservatives of all people should be the ones who understand that, that destabilized institutions uh, lead to the undermining of the individual's ability to do those things because they don't have the, the um, access to the networks in the community that they need to do those things. Uh, on the other hand, you might have what's almost, so it's a kind of hyper-individualism on that end, right? And then on the other end, you might have almost like a materialistic determinism, the blame the system end, which is, you know, there's nothing anybody can do. There's a kind of a hope or uh, hopelessness or despair. And so... What we want to do in the neighborhood stabilization movement is we want to be, number one, hyper-local. Hyper-local means something like block by block. <laughs> so a lot of, uh, let's say, white evangelical Christians, which is a lot of the people I'm around, uh, they'll be very excited about the city and they want to revitalize the city and love the city. Boy, the city is a lot of people. <laughs> That's a big abstract goal. At the organization I work with, which is called Love the Lou, we're the Lou, St. Louis, right? Love the Lou, we work on Enright Boulevard. Lucas, the founder, um, has been there 11 years. We just started our second neighborhood. It takes eight to 10 years of commitment to stabilize a block. This is what John Perkins says, right? And how do you go into that kind of work? Well, first of all, very humbly. So Perkins talks about the fact that we have to go in knowing our own brokenness well enough to never have a superior attitude towards the people that we're trying to help empower and network. Uh, part of the reason it takes eight to 10 years of commitment is because whenever you're in a highly uh, destabilized situation, you're in a low social trust situation, right? That's one of the reasons why uh, it's hard to get a flourishing economy. Right? That's true in, in development economics too. You need high social trust and, and good institutions, right? And so part of the way that it's hard and the reason it takes so long is just to gain trust. So I had an interesting thing happen at our recent fundraiser for the second neighborhood. We've bought a church and a, and a community center and there was a woman protesting because she was just sure that, that this was gentrification or something bad. And, uh, and so she was protesting and I said, Lucas, how did that make you feel? He goes, oh, that's no problem. He goes, that's what I'm good at. Because if you are angry and concerned and suspicious and fearful, I'll be here and I'll love you. And then later when you're upset and you're mad at me, I'll still be here and I'll love you. And then later, right? And it just keeps going and I just don't leave right? And then murders happen on the corner and I still don't leave. And then you steal my van and I still don't leave. Okay. 
And so, of course, there are practitioners who are called to do what Lucas does, but the rest of us who are not necessarily moving into the inner city are people whose network and mentoring and so forth are extremely valuable because what that isolation that I described through the way that the roads were built and the way that neighborhoods were scattered through urban renewal has created what I call network poverty, right? That's really what's wrong there. It's not necessarily lack of cash or something like that. It's network poverty. So what do we do? We support the practitioner by bringing our own networks into the neighborhood. So that's another element of the model that's very important. It, we're not asking residents or our neighbors to come out of their own neighborhood and come to my program. Whatever we're doing, we're doing it in the neighborhood. So for instance, my sons go to the community gardens on Saturday mornings and they work in the gardens and they mulch and they discuss uh, resilience with the other kids, right? Or whatever the virtue of the day is that's being discussed. And so what's the point? Is that a young person who is living very much in a world of a four to six block area, very, very socially isolated, sees a possibility right in front of their eyes and they walk past it every Saturday morning. Wait, people are, people are being paid? What do I have to do? <laughs> oh, they just show up. Okay, and so suddenly that alternative is right there. So you often wonder, why do these kids go in this wrong direction? Well, that's the alternative that's there, right in front of their eyes. And I once said to Lucas, how do you draw the students into your program rather than running drugs? I mean, you know, the kids told me themselves, they said, oh, our friends think it's cheesy, right? And, and he said, oh, it's easy. He said, well, they've seen older siblings and older cousins and so forth shot in prison right? It's not necessarily that anybody wants to go down that road. It's that in that little isolated bubble, that's the only road that's being presented. And so the neighborhood stabilization model brings that, those possibilities into the neighborhood so that they are right there in front of people. And so you often hear, it's about time to wrap, yeah, you often hear uh, conservatives critique the welfare state and particularly the perverse incentives that are created by the welfare state. This is, this is right. I, I agree with this critique. If you're interested in looking into this, there's a website called benefitscliffs.org. Benefitscliffs.org. And you can go in and look at just how perverse the incentives really are. My friend Craig Richardson says, it's not a welfare cliff, it's a welfare desert. Um, there is such a terrible disincentive to um, move off of welfare once you're on it. So I agree uh, with, the, with the conservative critique there, right? But there's a lot more going on than that, right? You have all these geographic elements that I've just described, okay? And the other real complaint about trying to solve these sorts of problems of or sorry, of destabilized neighborhoods, the real complaint about these kinds of mechanistic uh, government-run programs is that they're faceless, right? So, so yes, there are perverse incentives, but also they're faceless, there's no one there that you're getting a check in the mail. There's no body talking to you. Or if they are talking to you, and I just had this conversation with my friend Drew yet, or yesterday, two days ago, at the King's College, who's worked in these neighborhoods. And he said, the assumption is always that you are being paid to talk to me. And he, he said he couldn't even get people in the projects to believe him when he said, no, I'm not. I'm just here to get to know you and help you in any way I can. And they said, no, everyone, everyone who comes to talk to us is being paid to do that. Okay, and so that mechanistic approach is almost completely useless and possibly directly harmful in actually solving these problems where the kind of love and commitment 
and, and, and face-to-face intervention um, that, that we have in the Neighborhood Stabilization Program is different from that. And, and I'll, just, I'll just end by saying this. You know, I, I've been touting neighborhood stabilization. I want everybody to uh, get involved. I'm challenging conservatives in particular to put their money where their mouth is. If they want to complain about things like fatherlessness, I hope that you're mentoring a dad. I hope that you're taking kids to prison to visit their dad. I hope that you're mentoring a kid who doesn't have a dad, um, right? And so let's, let's be the difference uh, ourselves. I will just uh, end by saying that I, you know, I said to Lucas, I'm out there, right? And I'm letting people know about this model. And he said, Rachel, I hope you know, this is a model for, at least for the main practitioner who's going to be doing it, at least, and, and certainly a lot of the people around him. This is a model for Jesus people to do. He goes, look, what I'm going through right now with the new neighborhood, where it's back to the distrust and it's back to building from ground zero, he goes, there's not a lot of people who want to do this. It was hard enough the first time. Now I'm starting over, right? So the kind of genuine, uh, we might say grace-fueled love that's required for this kind of work really requires the church. And it's no surprise then that our four, I call them the prophets of neighborhood stabilization, John Perkins, Bob Woodson, Brian Fickard, and Bob Lupton are all Christians. And so there are people in totally secular nonprofit administration programs reading their books, but they're Christians and they're out in front and they're the leaders of this movement. I'll just end by saying this. When I invited Lupton to my old campus, Someone, you know, some tried and true conservative got up and said, well, isn't the problem the welfare state? And Lupton said, and I was shocked. It took me a couple years to, to actually accept what he said. So I don't expect you to accept it today, but just think about it. He said, what credibility do we have to critique the welfare state if the way that we do philanthropy to work in these communities is just an un- as undignifying and just as undermining of their uh, self-sustenance as the welfare state is. Shouldn't the church be first to demonstrate the way and then say we ought to get rid of perverse incentives uh, and facelessness, right? So I'll just stop there. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here in uh, Groove City. <laughs> Just a long Jason Peters airball from the great Jack Marin's hometown. Thanks to Jeff Bilbro and company for pulling this off. My wife and I recently celebrated our 35th anniversary. I gave her jewelry and a poem. She gave me an envelope. I opened it. Inside was the deed to a cemetery plot. <laughs> Happy anniversary. Thankfully, there was not a life insurance policy inside, but still. Lucine explained that nothing says I love you more than a promise of eternity together in the cold, hard ground under the old Batavia Cemetery on Harvester Avenue, where my mortal remains will repose whilst my spirit dawdles in that great bus station in the sky called Purgatory. No offense to you Protestants. I have bored the porch sitters of this cabal many times with tales, some verging on apocryphal, 
of my hometown of Batavia, New York. So I'll skip over all that and give you the view from the cemetery post-COVID. Grave matters have always interested me. And the older I get, the more dead people I know. I'm not yet keeping pace with my late Italian grandmother, who lived 94 years and scudded for the last 20 between funerals, wakes, and bedsides. But I do drop by cemeteries now and then, as if to ward off indictment by the replacements. The ones who love us best are the ones who will lay to rest and visit their graves on holidays at best. I often leave pennies on their gravestones, not out of innate cheapness, well, kind of out of innate cheapness, but uh, also because I was moved long ago seeing such tokens in the West Point Cemetery. From our new family plot, I can spot in the distance the obelisk of Joseph Ellicott, our town's founder, who in 1826 hanged himself in an insane asylum, leaving a suicide note that whined, however much I give to people, they do not love me. I promise not to brook myself, and I sure won't leave any self-pitying valedictory. Though all of you out there who never bought my books uh, will have to answer to a higher power. <laughs> and I don't mean Jeff Bezos. <laughs> On a recent brutally hot and wasp-swarming mid-afternoon, I stood over the grave and read to a boy who rests at the other end of this necropolis. His name was Stuart Glover, and he appears in Walt Whitman's Specimen Days to illustrate the terrible and tender realities of war death. Enlisting in the Union Army during the war between the states, Batavia Boy Glover, quote, soon took to soldier life, liked it, was very manly, was beloved by officers and comrades, end quote, records Walt Whitman. I love old Whitman so, as uh, Allen Ginsberg once poetized, but reading him is like rewatching Rock Hudson movies. Uh, sore thumbs, shall we say, stick out all over. In May 1864, after three years of, uh, in Father Abraham's army, young Stuart, all of 21 years of age, found himself at the Battle of the Wilderness. The fighting had about ceased for the day, wrote Whitman, and the general commanding the brigade rode by and called for volunteers to bring in the wounded. Glover responded among the first, went out gaily, but while in the act of bearing in a wounded sergeant to our lines, was shot in the knee by a rebel sharpshooter. Consequence, amputation, and death. Before his expiry, Stuart Glover was transported to the hospital at Armory Square in Washington, D.C., where Walt Whitman, a volunteer nurse, comforted him in his final hours. It was permitted in those benighted pre-pandemic days for family, friends, and even benevolent strangers to sit by a dying man. I hope at least Walt was wearing an N95 mask. Stuart Glover and his family are buried next to the towering cenotaph erected to William Morgan, a local inebriate who was blackballed by the Masonic Lodge and took revenge in 1826 by revealing the oaths and secrets of the Brotherhood in his book, Illustrations of Freemasonry. For his perfidy, Morgan was kidnapped by Masons and presumably drowned in the Niagara River. No one has pulled down or defaced the Morgan Monument or any of our town's statuary, even though Morgan may well have held retrograde views of the gender binary. Such acts of savagery are more typically committed in communities, or communities, disfigured by transience, affluence, universities, 
The answer to monuments of which one disapproves is not destruction or removal or whinging about hurt feelings, but rather the creation and emplacement of new monuments. I don't mean glorifications of dead politicians or generals. We've had enough of those to last a national lifetime, thank you. Rather, how about honoring local artists or athletes or musicians or just ordinary folks whose kindness or generosity brighten their little corner of the world? Poor Stuart Glover leads us to those uh, to the hyperventilators huffing today about an impending new civil war whose dim outlines are prefigured, longed for, by manic tweeters and internet hysterics, placeless people who live, so to speak, in cyberspace, where the streets have no name. These floating rootless atoms fantasize about waging war on their countrymen because they haven't any countrymen, not really. The internet is their true and only home. You hear them squealing. Did you see what that assistant professor from Montana State tweeted? Can you believe that TikTok video by the 15-year-old girl from Petaluma? Kids, don't get sucked into that anti-world. Don't enlist in the Cretan armies of the race warriors or the woke zombies. As Walt Whitman counseled, resist much, obey little. There isn't going to be any civil war in Batavia. The necrotic effects of cable television upon the tissues of civic and social life are much less advanced here than in the metropoles. We are not immune to the horrid effects of the nationalization of politics, Fox, CNN, MSNBC, keeping us in a constant state of agitation. But the smallness of scale, the intimacy, means that like and unlike are thrown together in community enterprises. I have seen Assembly of God church elders work side by side with very out gaze in the cheerful labor of neighbors because they come to know each other as rounded, multidimensional persons. This is simply not possible on a mass scale or with TV or the internet as intermediaries. Genuine diversity, that formerly useful word that has been drained of all meaning, exists at the human scale but is a grotesque parody on a larger scale. It has ever been so. There was an infinitely greater diversity of thought in the 1912 meeting of the Burdett, Kansas chapter of the Women's Christian Temperance Union than there is today in the entirety of the Manhattan and Brooklyn art scene. Resist much, obey little. How do we resist? Guns are no help, for he who picks up the sword hands it to his enemies. The natcons dreaming of sicking the FBI on the Democrats in 2025 are going to learn that lesson. No, our best weapons against the encompassing evil are place, love, friendship. Friendship is love without his wings, aphorized the very volant Lord Byron. Wings are an overrated appendage, aren't they? For there is a serious upside to the inability to take flight. It keeps one grounded and tamps the impulse to flee. Or as the alt-country singer Robbie Foulkes asked, wouldn't we all have wings if God loved goodbyes? We live in a ridiculous age in which politics has become so central to so many sad lives that friendships are now be-winged. 
disagreements over such uh, pixeled or pixelated creatures as Donald Trump and Joe Biden are the source of ruptured relationships and bitter words that can never be taken back. As a wingless attorney buddy of mine advises those seeking a divorce, never underestimate the value of the unexpressed thought. Only one friend, a D.C. would-be denizen of the deep state, has ever broken relations with me over politics. He severed the cord upon comprehending the full extent of my rejection of the catechism of the Church of Empire. He was an advocate of what he would call a robust and activist foreign policy. I thought he was kidding when he sternly lectured me so many years ago against taking a walk on the Pacific side. I mean, who gives a damn if we disagree over NATO and Nicaragua? or the relative merits of Robert A. Taft versus Nagasaki Harry Truman. It's not like either one of us else has a lick of influence. The American people, in case you haven't noticed, have no say whatsoever in U.S. foreign policy. As Dick Cheney said when told that the vast majority of Americans wanted our soldiers home from Iraq. So? He did say that. I'm afraid that a quarter century of radio silence suggests that my old friend Tom and I ain't ever going to drain beers again at the Tune-In or the Hawk and Dove or any of those old Capitol Hill bars that may not even exist anymore. I wish were not so. Power is poison, said the self-professed conservative Christian anarchist Henry Adams. And if there are no effective antidotes... The U.S. Constitution has done little to restrain the power mongers, just as the anti-federalists predicted. Why not strike at the root and aim to abolish political power? Till that happy, far-off day, we should take as our models those who understand that politics must always be subordinated to friendship. We might take a cue here from Barry Goldwater. Mr. In Your Heart, You Know He's Right. In your guts, you know he's nuts, cracked his foes. Um, And Goldwater speechwriter and friend, Carl Hess. Carl, one of the great characters of modern American political life, dropped out of the incipient conservatism incorporated in the late 1960s. He traded in his tie for a work shirt, took up welding, and joined the Wobblies. Hess explained, Vietnam should remind all conservatives that whenever you put your faith in big government... For any reason, sooner or later you wind up an apologist for mass murder. The story is told of one incendiary anti-war demonstration outside the Capitol. Even the usual peace and justice congressional orators passed on this one. The potential for harmful publicity was just too high. To the astonishment of the protesters, only one politician showed up. The pro-war Republican senator from Arizona, Barry Goldwater who wandered through the shaggy-haired and combat-booted multitude, asking the demonstrators, Where's Carl? Where's Carl Hess? He found him. Carl and Barry shook hands. Neither changed his mind about war, the war or capitalism, but so what? The warm clasp of friendship was what mattered. Friendship does lead us to perform unnatural acts. It led my wife to appear in two productions by our friend, the avant-garde playwright, 
staged in the unpretentious coffee shop nestled in an abandoned factory across the street from our future burial ground. In the first play, Lucine wore a death mask and finger puppet while singing Lou Reed's song, Vicious, over the playwright's corpse. You hit me with a flower, you do it every hour. Sing along. In the second show, she wore a toga and made her own abacus. Uh, unusual props for the supposed chatelaine of a resort hotel on nearby Chautauqua Lake. Chautauqua Lake, where naughty Muslims fish for salmon. Too soon? <laughs> Come on, the infidel lived. Lucine <laughs> fiddled with her abacus while a teenage girl dressed as young Arthur Schopenhauer read selections of the doleful Danziger's impenetrable prose. One gripping line began, ontologically speaking, um, you will not believe me when I say that it all came off just fine. <laughs> Schopenhauer meets Chautauqua is exactly what the theater world needs now more than ever. Homegrown, grassroots, locally accented plays that bring to life the idiosyncratic America that Taylor Swift and Netflix and Dr. Fauci would drown in pablum and paranoia. A pertinent, pathetic story. In 2009, Rocco Landisman, President Obama's chairman of the National Endowment for the Arts, visited Peoria, Illinois, that middle American metonym. The purpose was to demonstrate the vitality of theater in the heartland. How did Peoria demonstrate such said vitality? Perhaps with a play about uh, native son Richard Pryor, or a fantasia on the farm equipment industry, or some punked up medley of the mellow tunes of Peoria's own Dan Fogelberg. Met my old lover in the grocery store. <laughs> Eroticism on mute. Um, <laughs> No, the community theater entertained him with a performance of Rent. How obediently they lapped up their better sloppy seconds. The Peorians demonstrated their colonial servility, their abject and imaginationless acceptance of Mordor's culture widgets. Ontologically speaking, they dead. Batavia's avant-garde playwright, by the way, is a non-native. Much of Batavia's creative energy owes to newcomers, not COVID refugees, but people who moved here from outside and see it with fresh eyes. But it's important to learn the lay of the land too. Since Armenian apostolic churches do not dot the landscape of rural New York, my wife is nominally Presbyterian. At one meeting of the deacons of her church, our friend Fran, who had lived here for a decade or so and was still considered an outsider, sensibly opined that instead of sending money to the Presbyterian bureaucracy, the church ought to help people in need in its own backyard. For instance, said Fran, what about that fat retarded guy who walks around town all day smoking a cigarette and mumbling to himself? To which our friend Irene replied, you mean my brother? <laughs> There was no good answer to that. <laughs> In the neighboring cemetery, 
I have placed a Detroit Tigers decal on the untended grave of Vince Maney, the only boy from my county ever to play a Major League Baseball game. He played one game in 1912. When my dad was a kid, the nuns at St. Joe's School sent him over to get ink blotters from Mr. Maney at his insurance office. Despite extra innings, baseball is another tie that binds. It's a terrible line for which I apologize. Maxwell Perkins with a red pencil, that baby. But uh, For years, I was vice president of the Batavia Muck Dogs, uh, one of the only community-owned teams in professional baseball. There is no ownership set up so roundly detested by the profit-minded speculators in pro sports. We teetered on the financial ledge, the poor sister of the New York Penn League, and it wore on us. Sometimes during a game, I would stare at one of the faithful. Maybe Alice, a lifelong fan whose bandana covered a head balded by cancer treatments. Or Mark, a mentally limited older man whose imagination, like mine, was coterminous with Dwyer Stadium's boundaries. And I would think how crushed he or she would be if we lost our team. As it happens, we lost Alice and Mark before we lost the team. But we did lose the team when the dead souls who run Major League Baseball and who believe that sentiment and history are for losers, terminated the New York Penn League. They just up and killed it as part of a bloodbath that reduced the number of minor league baseball teams from 162 to 120. A circuit that was born in Batavia in 1939 died in Manhattan's oppressive Time Life Building, apt headquarters of Major League Baseball, during the first winter of COVID-19. The chief executioner, I regret to say, is a native upstate New Yorker, Rob Manfred, Major League Baseball commissioner, who announced the slaughter using words like modernizing, prioritized, and unrivaled technology. The argot of an android destroying what it does not understand. Now to hell with him. Because you know what? The Batavia Muck Dogs are the men they couldn't hang. We resurfaced in the sillily named but good enough perfect game collegiate baseball league, an amateur summer division for college ball players. Unlike the pros, the PGCBL encourages teams to sign a local ladder too. So the reborn muck dogs have included the son and grandson of friends. I detect faint but discernible echoes of the town baseball leagues that flourished into the 1940s with their fierce place-based rivalries. This spirit endures today in modified form at the high school level, although the Cold War-driven consolidation of school districts into multi-town agglomerations dulled those edges and muted those passions. Enraged as I was by Manfred's massacre of the miners, I think that ours was a promotion by demotion. For what is true in life is true in baseball, is true in politics, localize, decentralize, break down the overly large into smaller, more human scale. I mourn the death of the minors, but perhaps it presages the death of the majors, or at least the rebirth of baseball in organized forms that respect the local, the eccentric, the unregimented. I'm here to tell you that there is life after Major League-affiliated base baseball, just as there will be life after the welcome and deserved collapse of the American empire. Everything that dies, same day comes back. I hope. In the darkness at the edge of my hometown, uh, at Grandview Cemetery, I leave a shiny scent 
from my landsman John Gardner, the 20th century novelist, who called Batavia a symbol of both spiritual death and the death of civilization. Ouch! <laughs> Gardner lies equidistant between my great-grandmother, who died giving birth in the influenza epidemic of 1918, and her friend's daughter who was murdered, shot in the head in cold blood by her boyfriend on a romantic getaway. God and man, thy ways are inscrutable. I can't leave Grandview Cemetery without saying a few words to my late friend Peter, gentle soul and hoarder, whose car I now drive and whose home shelves were stocked with thousands of paper clips. If you're ever short of paper clips, just let me know. <laughs> and I always give a fond wink to Mamo, the late barfly mother of my dear old pal Mike. These days, Mike hobbles around with half a right foot due to diabetes. We joke that at least now he can kick a 63-yard field goal. <laughs> These ancient references. <laughs> What's next, a Rudy Valley joke? Come on. <laughs> Mamo, Mike's mom, used to buy our underage set beers at a friendly dive on the other side of the tracks. Don't tell Karen. No man knows the day or the hour. So what can we do but love one another? and love the places in which we live. On the stage or in the stadium, in the bar room or the coffee shop, in church or cemetery, community can only flourish when we meet each other face to face, maskless, as friends and neighbors, always in civil society, never in civil war. Thanks for listening. Wolverines. Hearty thanks to the sponsors of the 2022 After Virtual Conference. Those are PLOW, the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, the Institute for Faith and Freedom at Grove City College, and the American Conservative. Please make plans to join the 2023 conference that will be held October 21st in Madison, Wisconsin. Paul Kingsnorth will be the featured speaker. Until next time, thanks for pulling up a chair. Find your way home. Find your